everybody, and welcome back to Butter With That, a movie podcast where some friends from Philadelphia get together to talk about all things movies. I am joined this week by Christine, Connor, and Sam. Uh, it's great to see you guys again uh, as we continue rolling through the uh, the magical month of January. There's magic in the air here at Butter With That. We're kind of talking about some magic movies and leaving that pretty open to interpretation. And this week we have... Uh, some magic and uh, a lot of woe, I think, uh, but we'll be, we'll be getting into all that soon. But before we do, I uh, wanted to just uh, go around the table and see how everybody's doing and whether or not anybody's caught anything lately that's uh, their attention really stood out. I just panicked and was like, have I seen anything in the past <laughs> week? And I don't think that I have. Have I even watched? Have I, have I sat in front of a screen? I, I literally can't remember a single thing. I actually, no, you know what? That's not true. Um, I watched Inception, Dark Knight Rises, and then another movie that's coming up literally within mm, 24 hours. That was a lot of Chris Nolan and Chris Nolan-like things. Um, So I'm I'm in a weird headspace. Yeah, that'll do that. Being unaware if you're in a dream or not, uh, not knowing which part of your life this is in chronology, a whole, a whole lot of things. I haven't been watching too much. Um, I did start, this was like two weeks ago, uh, The Book of Boba Fett when that premiered, the new Star Wars show. Uh, I'm at this point, and when this comes out, I'll be a few episodes behind. So hopefully, I'll probably just wait till it's only six episodes. So I might just wait till the end just to binge it all at once. But like the first episode, good for uh, Tamir Morrison, who just took this small role back in 2002 and is now. Uh, becoming this like big TV star, so good for him. And he was an Aquaman, so I don't know. he's a nice guy. puts on a good performance, so happy for him. And uh, McNa Wen co-stars, so she's a delight in everything. Yeah, I was trying to think of movies I've watched, and haven't really watched much else besides movies in preparation for with butter with that. But I did actually start a new show. That is an Australian show with Jamie Dornan called The Tourist. And it's essentially kind of, speaking of Nolan-esque stuff, it's kind of like a memento where this guy wakes up in a hospital bed and has no idea who he is. And he has to piece together what his story is, how he got into the middle of the Australian outback uh, because he plays like an Irish tourist and you follow him on this journey and you piece all, put all the pieces together and it's great. It's got like mystery, you know, he runs, well, actually I'm not going to give anything away, but it's great. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. And it's great to see Jamie Dornan kind of just doing some other things uh, besides being a, a serial killer in Northern Ireland. <laughs> <laughs> nice. We'll catching up on some stuff sort of uh making our way through some, some titles. That's really cool. And uh, making our way into this week's title, uh, continuing and kind of uh, pressing on with our magic theme and, and seeing, I guess, how far conceptually we can stretch that. We are talking this week about 1984's The Never-Ending Story. da 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 1984 fantasy film uh, that was directed by Wolfgang Peterson. For those who haven't seen this movie before, I suppose a brief plot synopsis would be that we follow Bastion. Uh, He's a child who uh, is mourning the loss, a seemingly recent loss of his mother, and uh, really kind of 
connects with literature and with writing and with, with books uh, as kind of an outlet, as a sort of almost like fantasy, fantastical escapism, almost in a way. Uh, and he happens to come across this book, The Neverending Story, which has uh, a, was rumored to have a, a serene power that uh, makes it more than your average book. And as he continues reading, uh, he finds himself transported into the world of Fantasia, which we're also treated to that uh, a fantastical landscape that is strewn with all sorts of really interesting characters, some really cool effects, uh, and ultimately the story of uh, Atreyu, who is a young warrior who has to chart his way across Fantasia to find a cure for the uh, the sickly childlike empress, which is her name, and uh, that so that the entire realm of Fantasia can protect itself against the oncoming threat of the nothing, a sort of abstract void that is swallowing up the space as we know it. Uh, so to my knowledge, I believe, Christine and Sam, you guys have seen this movie before, correct? Yeah, but watching it, I realized that there was so much I didn't remember, and I might not have seen the whole thing ever in one sitting. So, Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, and I saw it when I was a, a very, very young kid, did not see it ever again, and was almost watching it for a new. Nice, nice, very cool. I, I grew up with this movie and really sunk my teeth in and dug my heels in a lot with it. This this and The Secret of Nim were on pretty heavy rotation in my household as a child, which kind of says a lot, I think. Uh, but Connor, this was your first time seeing it, as I understand it. So what was it like growing up without a shattered childhood? It, I guess good. Uh, I guess good not having a shattered childhood. Um, I Yeah, so this was my first time watching it. I've heard of this movie... Um, it's interesting watching something that has a pretty big pop culture significance, like, Oh, there's this thing that I recognize from this other thing or little parts that have seeped into other media, other, um, shows, movies, et cetera. So interesting. Literally the watch. band Atreyu. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So interested to dive in and interested to hear other people's thoughts who have a deeper connection with this movie. Yeah, interested to get into it, too. And we're going to get into uh, a lot of it. I mean, the film sort of opens with this uh, this German banger of a pop song, this uh, never end, as we we topped off at the beginning, never ending story. But on top of these, like, very ominous rolling cumulonimbus clouds, which seem to be very menacing. So it's kind of a strange introduction to the movie. The track is amazing, so much so that the movie ended, the track plays in the credits, and I let the movie roll again (laughs) in order to hear the beginning and hear the track again. So you could really just play, I mean, you know, for a title like Never Ending Story, you could really just cycle it over and over because of that banging opener and closer. Yeah, it's got some hooks. It really does. Uh, that leads us then into us meeting Bastion, our uh, sort of child protagonist, who is uh, at the time buttering untoasted white bread while his dad is basically telling him after he's had a dream about his recently uh, recently passed mother, something to the effect of like, listen, son, I know it's been a while since your mom died, but stiff upper lip. Uh, and that he, he should keep his feet on the ground and uh, keep his head out of the clouds. Uh, so that sort of being an important uh, important lead into this character. He's he's kind of got a lot of going on, Bastion. It seems as though he's a very imaginative child. 
uh, and his father seems to be trying to get that uh, get that to stop. I don't know. What do we what do we think of meeting Bastion's dad and the one interaction that we get with him? I went back and forth on this a lot, actually, because at first, you know, okay, so you're hit with this kid is like clearly going through something. His mom just died, and um, his dad is like some type of you would assume businessman he like seems kind of disconnected with the kid and he basically said yes yeah, so your mom's dead but like we still have to keep on cheerio and so at first i was like ew and and then <laughs> though he does try to level with bastion and is like listen like i know that this is difficult and i know that this sucks but like you can't you can't let this keep you down forever you know there are certain things that you you need to focus on and i want to make sure that you're doing that because he's talking about math class in particular and like fuck math you know who i do have beef with the math teacher i think that teacher should have been like a little bit more like empathetic like hey this kid's dad this kid's mom's just died like maybe like not go to the dad and be like well he's not handing in his homework and like you know blah 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 blah. that's who i have beef with because like you know the dad's probably also grieving and trying to like find some way of connecting with his child and trying to get things back to normal so i don't know i I, like i don't think that i i dislike the interaction and i don't i think that i can see maybe misguided where the dad is coming from um but the teacher i was like well fuck you you know I think it might have played better for me with the dad if at one point during the conversation he didn't go across the room to make himself a smoothie. <laughs> um, just, and a smoothie. Fun. Did you see what goes in the smoothie? I sure did, yeah. It's like fucking raw egg and orange juice <laughs> and something, I don't protein protein? I don't know, it was nasty. Like, that's all I could focus on in that scene. Like a I also thought... <laughs> yeah, seriously. I was like... Is that dad about to go run 20 miles across the city? I also think that the dad was being pretty uh, confrontational at the kid's breakfast. But then I realized, because he's like, you should try out for the swim team. You're doing terribly in math. And all those horseback riding lessons I paid for, you won't even get on a horse. And and you love unicorns. And all. it's like, lay, lay off the kid. I felt really bad for him. But then I realized after recognizing we only meet the dad once in the whole movie, that he's just being used as a device, like (laughs) to lay out all of this kid's complexities and problems in a span of two minutes as this dad, like is incessantly railing at the kid about all of his inadequacies. So I was like, okay, dad as uh, expositional device. Sure. But also he really needs to lay off his son. But you know what I found myself like really, really drawn to in that scene and almost could like not pay attention to anything else. Uh, Bastion buttering that bread. It it was terrible. And he does it twice. And, and the father's just like kind of okay with what he's witnessing. Him just like murdering this piece of bread with like, weird butter and is he like making his lunch that we eventually see later because that's not the same piece of bread that we see (laughs) no that bread gets mangled yeah well we also uh continue on with bastion's hilariously cruel life he's uh on his way to school and he's harassed by some schoolyard bullies who toss him into a dumpster only to have him then climb out of the dumpster after they've left and then immediately run into them, which leads to one of my favorite lines in any movie. 
who said you could get out the trash? So this is Bastion's life that we're being introduced to. I want that on like my tombstone or something. Like just, <laughs> I need it somewhere. It feels like an important line. I was just going to say, I, I enjoy the introduction. It's a little heavy handed as we've mentioned, but the bullying scene is, is pretty good. There's some pretty mean bullies to force this kid to go into a huge dumpster and then come out. Yeah. So I think for me, it like works a little heavy handed, but it functional and gets the job done and certainly leaves a memorable moment and a memorable line. And a moment that will be uh, tied into elliptically at the end of the film as well. Yeah. Uh, so he, running away from the bullies, Bastion makes it into a bookstore where after disarming this dismissive shopkeep with some literary references, uh, gets a hold of the book, The Neverending Story. Wait, can, sh- sorry, can I just interject? I only oh, have like six notes that I took while <laughs> watching the movie. But one of them, and I, the very first note is that the bookkeeper is like skeptical of this kid. He's like, oh, you just read comic books. Like you don't read any good literature. And as you said, Dave, the kid just like rattles off all of these like classic novels. Uh, and, uh, but what's great is that the, even then the bookkeeper says, quote, the books you read are safe. I was like, this guy is such a fucking creep. And he repeats it multiple times. Like kids these days are just reading literature that's safe. And you're like, where is this guy going with this assessment of like kid literature and the night 19- gatekeeping the literary references of yeah, well, like an like, eight year old. I don't want to know what unsafe uh, literature this bookkeeper <laughs> is exploring. You think this place is a back room? <laughs> uh, most definitely. Ugh. But yeah, the well, he does caution him though. The shopkeeper uh, handing it over to him tells him that. Uh, this is not a safe story like regular books. So it seems as though he's uh, he's, he's definitely going to be dipping his toe into something uh, a bit more than, uh, than an eight-year-old would normally absorb. Although it's interesting because it is also a fiction book written for like children that this guy's like, this book's crazy. I'm glad you brought that up because this book's scene, and I just have so many questions, I think, throughout the whole movie. Um, I think endless. But so this old man older man was reading this kid's book with a kid protagonist that is supposed to be like the kid protagonist in the book and see the person reading the book. I mean, we're just getting full spoilers. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a whole meta thing. Right. And then also Bastion owns 146 books. Did I miss a scene where like we saw books like in his house or I just felt like that line came out of nowhere. And I feel like there was a really missed opportunity to like, instead of butchering that loaf of bread, why doesn't he like reading a book at breakfast and his dad (laughs) tries to stop him? Or like, I just was so like, that came out of nowhere that this kid is like a big reader or nerd, like literary nerd. Like I just thought that was totally left field. That would make an awful lot more sense to, as far as his character, if he's like absorbing that while being criticized for escaping into fantasy through literature as opposed to think of it as mother's death instead of destroying bread. So yeah, it's a really good observation. Uh, Bastion then takes the book and he stows away in the attic of the school, the attic of the school, by the way, (laughs) anybody have that? This attic looks like, yeah, I mean, it's a set obviously, but no school had an attic that looks like cobweb dusted and like old coat racks and, wooden boards everywhere like perfect for opening up an old 
fantastical novel. Like, yeah. Okay. No, my school did not have this. Question, though, for the group. If your school did have this and did have the key just available, uh, (laughs) would you go in? Because I would 100%. Yeah, there was definitely a period in high school where I would... I would kind of get hall passes from my art teachers so I could just hang out in the art rooms. So I think I'm pretty inclined to escape uh, school in order to stow away somewhere myself. So I went to a um, Catholic high school in Philly that, that has a huge old church next to it built in like the 1850s. And I went to the bell tower once and like the top of, of the Jesu church. And it did remind me of that. Like if I were to run away mm-hmm. to a secret spot in the school, um, it did bring back some high school memories of us having a, a through the service office having to do tasks up there when it was just me and my friends. Just any excuse to just go up to the old rickety part of the church that nobody else was allowed in. Well, yeah. Speaking of Bastion, anyway, he's in this attic in school, and he begins paging through the never-ending story. At which point, the movie itself transports us into the fantasy world of Fantasia from the perspective of Bastion's imagination. Uh, we're thrust into a pretty dreary yet kind of beautifully designed bog where a man and his giant racing snail and a goblin person with their large riding bat are nearly run over by a giant rock eater. That's sort of a large character made of rocks uh, who eats rocks. And they briefly discuss the nothing, which is a mysterious force encircling and destroying Fantasia. I'm like disappointed that these characters aren't in it more often. First of all, first of all, Deep Roy is the the person that we see. Mm-hmm, right. Um, and I had never really heard him before in like a real speaking role. So, well, I guess I have because I saw this movie when I was a kid, but like I, I didn't like consciously know about it. Um, so that was interesting. But the I was disappointed. I wanted to see more of the bat. The bat was cute. That's great. The sleepy bat. And the character design is amazing. I think these characters look great. The costume that uh, he's wearing, uh, the sort of great prosthetic work on this, this sort of like goblin like sort of person. The the bat and the snail creatures are incredible. The rock monster is a little bit like clumsy in the sense that it's like obviously rubber. So it's like rock that bends a bit. But I think the design is pretty spectacular. So immediately it really drew me into its world. Um, and the production design, the, like the landscapes in this film are outstanding throughout. Did they have to overdub a lot of the dialogue, especially in that scene? I noticed that the words that were spoken are definitely not the words coming out of those actors' mouths. And I was like, maybe because this was a German production and like filmed in like Bavaria studios or something, they they had to go back in and actually have voice voice work do all the like English dialogue. I, that's just something I was noticing in those specific scenes where we're introduced to all those characters. But. Yeah. I'm really unsure of that. I, I I'm not sure how that worked out as far as dub. I, I think the film was shot and spoken and, you know, recorded and scripted in, in English, but I don't recall. Uh, but then uh, after meeting these characters and after being introduced to this world as his bastion, we arrive at the ivory tower, which is, Kind of like Fantasia's City Hall, I guess. Uh, it's like a giant castle where a council of strange and magical creatures have gathered because the childlike empress has fallen ill. 
Um, some of the fantastical creatures in this scene scattered throughout are, are really incredible. There's a mushroom guy. There are two things that are just sort of like upright fish heads. There's uh, a couple of fairies around and all of them are sort of in this one space really showcasing the imaginative production design of this film and like costuming wardrobe. It's all kind of a knockout. Uh, they themselves, uh, as a council of summoned the warrior Atreyu to come to their aid and find a cure, since they believe that saving the Empress will keep the nothing at bay. When a child, Atreyu, arrives, uh, they initially dismiss him, but he convinces them of his conviction, and they set him on a quest armed only with a medallion called the Orin. Atreyu then sets off on his journey astride his faithful horse, Artex, as the score swells gorgeously with some breathtaking riding scenes, and it's just a great start to this adventure. But we also learn that another character, the Gamork, has also been beset on a quest of their own, which is to hunt down and kill Atreyu. To be honest, all of this was just incredibly confusing for me. Oh, really? And I felt like, I, I mean, I guess so not confusing in, like, plot, but just confusing in, like, like why. Like, I just felt like I was missing so much lore, and it kind of just felt like, well, let's just rush through all of these really important lore moments in this world. I don't know if I'm just, like, Lord of the Rings, Game of Thrones brained of, like... I just felt like, all right, we're a movie and we're trying to make it a really good movie and we just got to rush. We got to get the characters out. We got to get them here. We got to get into the swamp because the swamp's huge and we paid a lot of money for it and we're going to spend <laughs> a lot of time in the swamp. Um, and it just was like, okay, I get it. But like, I just, I feel like I just had a hard time connecting with the characters. And I guess they're not, I mean, they are characters. I don't know. The, I guess I'm like, what is this movie trying to do? And I've, I feel like when I kind of realize what it, what is happening, it's like two thirds of the way through. And I was just wondering, like, I just wish I like could connect a little more to like Bastion and Atreyu. Like I was, I don't know, this horse kid with like Native American symbology, like a plains person. I don't know. It's like. He's originally, and they tried this. He was originally in the book was the character that had uh, blue skin. So they did try painting him and that didn't work. <laughs> um, but that uh, Noah Hathaway, who has a hell of a time in this movie, we'll get to that. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I do see where you're coming from, Connor, because it does sort of, it's suddenly like he's summoned. We don't really know why he in particular is summoned, but when he shows up and is a kid, they're like, meh. And he's like, no, I can do it. And they're like, yeah, okay. But you can't bring weapons. Also, we're not going to tell you why. Here's an amulet. You don't know what it means yet. You have to get a cure for the princess to fight the nothing. We don't know why. So yeah, there are a lot of open-ended questions that, I think aren't really dissolved because they are underbaked as just sort of structure devices. So yeah, I, I do see where you're coming from with that. I caught it a lot more this time. And I think that can work if Bastion, I feel like is a more active like storyteller, like maybe that like more narration element or like what's upon a time in this world of like, I feel like I wanted a little more like fairy tale like setup. I'm not sure if I'm phrasing that correctly, but I just feel like this movie rushes to get to the cool stuff when the stuff about the amulet, the ivory tower, the empress are like really important concepts. Yeah, the stuff that matters. Yeah. The stuff that like matters of why like the world is falling apart and why Bastion and Treyu are so critical to the world surviving. But it just rushes to have the horse in the swamp is what it kind of feels like. But then you have like people like me who are like, yep, cut it. I don't care. Get to the action. And I'm just like, yeah, what's up? I'm glad someone's noticing that this is a child and perhaps we shouldn't put our future in the hands of a child, but, um, <laughs> they yeah, they, the first people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They let it happen. They're like, yeah, well, eh, go ahead. 
another question for the group. Was there ever a point where you were just like slightly rooting for, what the hell is its name? The Gamork? The Gamork? Yeah. Yeah. The, the older I've gotten <laughs> and the more I've been ground down, the more I'm like, yes, like the Gamork, I invite the nothing. <laughs> uh, like the wolf guy? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I, the whole time I was like, this is Gizly when my cat, when he's like not being fed, he just like will find a dark corner and just like bare his teeth. Well, not like that. <laughs> he's not that scary, but I thoroughly enjoyed that character. Yeah, as a kid, I was terrified of the Gamoric, but I also quietly adored it as a villain. And uh, yeah, we'll be getting back to uh, to him and how he crashes into this journey. Speaking of the journey, Atreyu and Artex are making their way across the swamps of sadness. Uh, until Artex becomes mired in a bog. Uh, realizing that Artex is quickly sinking, Atreyu sobs and pleads with him to get up and press on, to not let the sadness take him. And then after a heart-wrenching struggle, we cut to black, only to fade in upon Atreyu, now sitting alongside the blackened waters that have swallowed his companion. Yo, horse This depression. is like 20 minutes in. Yeah, I... What does that horse have to be depressed and sad about? I don't know, <laughs> but I'm curious. And now I need to know. And like, I was watching that horse's face. It was like, I'm not moving, child. The horses, there. it took, apparently it took them three weeks to sh to film it because they it was, had to. Mm. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, it's going to be three weeks, but it went on into seven. <laughs> Okay, well, they had to train the horse to be okay with being submerged up to its neck, which is, like, not natural for a horse, which makes total sense. And, uh, yeah, and the, apparently there were, like, rumors that the horse had died or something, and then directors and producers were like, no, no, this horse lived a long life on a German ranch in retirement. And you're like, okay, sure. Uh, but... The horse looks terrified the whole time. And the, the bit is like being pulled out of his mouth. And you're like, oh, this is rough. Why is this 20 minutes into the movie? <laughs> like, like this is this is like the war horse. Like, why is war horse dying 20 minutes into the movie? And then it's like, well, now you got to walk 10,000 miles. I mean, getting ahead of ourselves, but it's just sort of... <sighs> I just questioned the structure and I'm not going to keep bringing up questions like that all the time. Cause that's just exhaustive. But, um, I just couldn't let that go. Why 20 minutes in when we have no connection with this horse. That's the thing. Yeah. We, we just know that hits his horse. And when it dies, it's like, we're supposed to be crushed by it, which as a kid, of course, was a grueling cinematic experience for me. And right. now I'm just like, this just looks like an upset horse. They shouldn't have done this. <laughs> and they do the classic. Um, we don't, have a way to shoot this so fade to black or do a quick cut mm, to get yeah. to the part that's that we can do which as an adult of course i'm seeing now as a child i probably would have been in absolute tears seeing this poor horse drown off screen i just like i can't i cannot get over the fact that this horse succumbed to the sadness i, I i'm just stunned what was going on beforehand? Because you like I'm this just horse so just has like, <laughs> has like running commentary and it's just like, fuck this, I hate my life. Well, apparently in the book, the horse Artex speaks and oh. is basically saying to him like, look, you're going to want to turn away, man. I can't do this. I just got to sink in the book. That would have been so great to be able to recreate in a movie. Like if 
Bastion can't narrate oh, what's going on the whole time. I doubt we want like an inner monologue of Atreyu. The horse kind of narrating what's happening and providing some sort of, uh, I don't know, commentary would be really, really fascinating. Possibly just hilarious and distracting, but interesting, I think. <laughs> yeah, if this horse is basically like narrating the entirety of the story. And it's like 20 minutes in, and it's just like, and this is where I see myself out, folks. Bye. <laughs> it's only going to get worse from here, which it does. Uh, marching onward, Atreyu comes across a steep hill where he thinks he'll find Morla, the ancient one, when suddenly the hill itself rises uh, from the dirt, revealing it to be the back of Morla, a giant turtle. Morla speaks in the third, uh, in the uh, first person plural. After years of speaking only to herself, sounds a little bit like Golem, ladies and gentlemen, but then relays their apathy to Atreyu's cause, saying, quote, we don't even care that we don't care. Uh, after she sneezes on him a bunch, she directs him to the Southern Oracle, adding that they're 10,000 miles away. Uh, what do we think of Morla? I think this this just, this character design and uh, whatever they did to make this prop is remarkable. Very cool. Glad they used a turtle for this. Could not imagine another, a better animal choice. Very good. This movie does scale very well. Mm. And there's some moments that are in a good way where you can see how they're like kind of characters of foreground background um, in a good way, like just using very simple tricks. And so um, the turtle scenes are really great of where he's holding onto the branch and getting sneezed off and flying off. Um, I thought this scene in terms of like shot composition and like the way it's filmed uh, was really a delight to watch. One of my favorite sequences now as an adult, I remember as a kid thinking like, all right, this is kind of slowing things down because ultimately the turtle's just like, oh, I don't give a shit, walk 10,000 miles. But as an adult, just watching the way that it was built and uh, yeah, Connor, as you mentioned, really establishing the scale and uh, grandeur of this world, which is still just like this desolate bog really kind of enhances it in some really, really memorable ways. I, I think a lot of what I am drawn to and sticks with me about this movie is just like the set and character design. Uh, but back in the real world, Bastion is reading on as a storm has blown over the school. He's going to flee afraid, but then reminds himself, no, Atreyu wouldn't quit now. So already he's starting to identify with this character as he's reading on. Um, he works his way back upstairs only to bump into, I guess, a wolf head mounted on a board that falls on him which is in this school's attic, which also why a school attic, but at any rate, it's it's just a terrifying little moment, but it does really gracefully segue into a transition back into Fantasia where Gamork, a wolf, uh, is on a fierce pursuit through the bog toward the exhausted Atreyu. Uh, and this Gamork Gam, Gamork Cam perspective really rules too. It's like very evil dead. Okay, I think that was a moment where I was like, this movie has no idea what it, like wants to do it has no consistent like narrative <laughs> device <laughs> it can do practical effects so well it creates as you guys were saying such a beautiful world that as connor said plays with scale but the editing choices are bizarre and i think that is what kind of contributes to like the fact that it has doesn't feel like it has like a really consistent forward thrust because you're constantly being move between characters and then perspectives. And that wolf cam was like, 
what? And I don't even know if it returns again in the entire movie. I'm pretty sure it doesn't. (laughs) It's interesting, but I was just like, what? Who greenlit the wolf cam? It's a really weird move. And like, I love the photography of it. Like, like I said, like really harkens back to like Raimi's evil dead, just this fast camera blasting through this bogscape, like smashing its way through like branches and harrows and stuff. But yeah, it is entirely, it's so jarring because all of a sudden we know Atreyu is like also mired in this bog while something is blitzing toward him. And then we establish this, the wolf and it's like, well, wait, why are we getting his, is he our focus now? What, where am I supposed to rest my hat here? Uh, only to find Atreyu like exhausted in the muck, uh, who is just about to be caught by Gamork until, and this is the, kind of the first breath of fresh air in this movie, the first optimistic note, uh, Falcor, the dog-faced white luck dragon, plucks him from the mud and they soar into the sky. And we meet Falcor. Uh, any thoughts on uh, Falcor? He's actually a 43-foot-long uh, motorized creature with 6,000 plastic scales and pink feather fur. His head was three feet long, and for some reason, this is also a note, quote, has a long tongue in the mouth. I deeply appreciate the craft that went into Falcor, but man, this just took me out of it. Because um, <laughs> it's just like, it has so much dialogue, so much talking in the film. And I think there's some great moments where there's like little people that will talk, like shorter people are talking about and like the way he interacts with it. But then the scenes where it flies over and you just see white paws grabbing him or I don't know. It's like, I'm the luck dragon. I don't know. It's <laughs> like, I feel like, I don't know, creature creep of like all of these wonderful creatures. And I, I guess want more Falcor, maybe less. I don't know. I just, I could not like, wrap my head around this creature. Like I said, appreciate the design of it. Totally. Like it's such an impressive build, but to give this character so much dialogue when it can't articulate its lips. It's a, yeah, the, it, the engineering on the mouth is not great. I'm sure I just pissed off a whole lot of people who love the never ending story and like have uh, Falcor tattoos, but, and also appreciate that it's like an Eastern style dragon in this Western story. Also mm. appreciate that design. But um, I think Falcor was just a big swing and a miss for me. I love that funky little dragon. Love him. Would love to have one. Would love to cuddle up. Also symbolically, I'm like, ooh, that is my antidepressant. And that's exactly how I feel when I am right on the, on the nose there with, with my uh, medication and all my levels. Yes, the good luck dragon indeed. So I don't know. I like them. Connor, I understand coming in as an adult being like, this is weird. Um, the tongue, I'm glad you mentioned I did notice it this time around and was uncomfortable for like a hot second and then was like, eh. I think Falcor is stunning, beautiful, everything, especially, and I think this is when spending a lot of time in the design really pays off. And I don't even need any quality dialogue between Atreyu and Falcor. Just watching Falcor breathe is like the most beautiful thing Ever. And I could have watched that for 50 whole minutes. And certainly his his lips could have maybe been designed to actually sound out the words that he's saying a little bit better. But 
Falcor's body is so beautiful. And just, again, the, the breathing, the in and out of his stomach is looks so natural. And the way that they have designed his like soft fur and then the beautiful glimmering scales. I mean, he's a stunning work of art and his eyes are so beautiful. I, I mean, I, yeah, I love Falcor so much. You would be the person, Christine, in uh, Fantasia Park when John Hammond is just like, we have a Falcor. And would lose it. I was kind of losing it when I knew Connor was going to be like, ah, I don't like Falcor. I was <laughs> silently losing it in my Zoom corner. <laughs> well, speaking of how it, uh, how Falcor plays a role in this journey, uh, when Atreyu comes to, he finds that Falcor has uh, carried him a great distance toward the Southern Oracle. Uh, he even says, it's just around the corner uh, and encourages Atreyu to pass on. Walking onward, he finds the home of two kind of like elf-looking folks, uh, one of whom is brewing him a potion and the other writing down some sort of science to help him, uh, both of whom are bickering a lot. Uh, they watch through a telescope as a knight rides toward the first gate, uh, toward the Southern Oracle, uh, which is a pair of golden-winged sphinxes who, when opening their eyes, fell the knight with a blast. The sphinxes can see straight into your heart, offers the old man sucks talk about trauma you know just like watching that whoo da, 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 da. <laughs> this this might have been my favorite part of the whole movie oh. with the husband wife i thought the set design was awesome i mean i'm a um i thought this is such a great use of like these are smaller in stature people like elfish sort of figures mm -hmm. but how they have how they shot a Treyu like walking beside them. I thought the, the scientist guy and his wife had such a great back and forth of like, because I'm a scientist, because I'm a scientist. Get out um, of my light, wench. Yeah. <laughs> it says, get to the winch, wench. Winch, was like, winch. There's like some good wordplay and she's like this and he's like swinging back in the bucket yelling and I'm just like, so I really, I think that this stretch of the Southern Oracle is probably my favorite part of the whole film and once we get past the first Sphinxes, so I thought this 20 minute stretch was like, oh, like um, this is when I felt like I was really clicking with the film and the design and what was happening. It is I maybe the most lived in part, I'd say. I couldn't help but like think, good luck storming the castle. It was like very Princess Bride, really Billy Crystal characters. Definitely Billy Crystal vibes in that little hut. <laughs> Atreyu decides that he's gonna take his chances with the gate. As he approaches, he sees that the blast has charred the fallen knight. So again, the dire stakes of this bog that is Fantasia. After summoning his courage, though, he bolts through the sphinxes just as their blast narrowly misses him. The next challenge, though, he finds out is uh, this mirror that reveals to all that view themselves in it their true selves. This pretty popular device in different mythoses that's been you know, a trope that's been revisited many times and is being incorporated here, which finds Treyu standing uh, in front of it, staring through the glass at Bastion, who, staring back, throws the book aside, saying, this has gone too far. And Bastion is really kind of like, it's, it's sort of like starting to break his mind a little bit. He offers like, but what if they really do know about me in Fantasia? Which drives him to continue reading. Uh, and Atreyu walks through the mirror Matrix style, uh, he finds another pair of sphinxes, these two, uh, instead of gold and glowing blue, who address him. They reveal themselves to be the Southern Oracle, saying that the Empress's cure 
is to be given a name by a human child, a reader beyond the boundaries and pages of Fantasia. They then begin to crumble, urging, crumble, urging him to hurry on. I got to say, anticlimactic. Because, uh, you know, you had like the tiny little elf dude. He was like, the second gate's even harder. And I like, <laughs> I just felt that it I, like i get what they were saying it was like oh i try you and bastion are like the the main characters and they're like some like each other or whatever like i get that but i just felt like they really kind of dropped the ball he's like walking through the mirror and things are just fine like that was like not that big of a deal in comparison to the other sphinxes who are gonna like eviscerate his body yeah as opposed to being blasted with the laser i suppose you got a point yeah I what I liked about this moment, I loved how it was shot. Um, the icy wall, like the big circular mirror, like visually, this is probably my favorite like scene of the movie. Um, and I loved that it's Bastion through the mirror. You know it's gonna be Bastion, and you're like, oh, it's him. Was it gonna be the fat guy if he got to this part of the book and a tray the book guy, the older he's I guess he's not fat, but the older bookstore man. <laughs> Would it be him and be like, who are you? <laughs> like, you know, that, or does the book alter itself to like, would it be like an older, stodgy Atreyu? Or like, that's, what is like, how does the book work for anybody else besides an eight year old boy? That's sort of a fan theory that I've heard passed around is that like this, the bookkeeper had the Bastion's experience when he was a child mm. and therefore knows the seriousness of like the, the text and, it's like meta transitive property, um, but also, you know, experienced it as a child as well. Oh, interesting. Again, it's fan theory, so not not canonical. Does he just keep going to that moment being like, look at me, Atreyu, recapture what we had. <laughs> Witness me. <laughs> well, uh, Trey jumps back on Falcor. Um, they're trying to outrace the nothing to the boundaries of Fantasia, where this promised human child is who can save the day by giving the childhood empress a new name. It's all a little bit confusing and vague yet. And along the way, we get a lot of woos as we soar over the sky with this green screen landscape that holds up pretty well for the most part. It looks I amazing. Think. It uh, like, I, yeah. like as an adult, I'm like, I want to be there in the sky riding on Falcor's back. I think it's transporting. I think it's the score too, doing a lot of heavy lifting in these scenes. Um, this, by the way, uh, as far as uh, the technical effects of this movie, it's set building and everything else, uh, was actually at the time that it was released, the most expensive film produced outside of the United States or Soviet Russia, which is, uh, you know, interesting uh, as far as... Uh, how they choose to how they chose to spend that money? It seems like they really invested in atmosphere, maybe over better adapted screenwriting. But <laughs> didn't the writer of the book that it's based on see the movie and was like, "This is garbage." Hates it. Really hates it. Yeah. <laughs> I could see, yeah, like a writer who's certainly creating a world, but also is going to be concerned with how a story is told and whether or not effectively, like a story is told effectively watching a movie like this and being like, <laughs> it completely sapped this, like uh, this universe of any story I had created, but I'd be curious. Have you read the book, Dave? I have not. And I really should. Um, 
I know though that this this movie, what takes place in the movie, is only the first third of the book. Oh, first um, third. Oh, I heard first half, but first third. Interesting. Yeah, I guess that's why they got to stretch everything out, and actually, nothing happens. <laughs> when reading through the, like, I was so curious. Um, so I read through the Wikipedia description of the book. The book sounds awesome. And like diving into these scenes that this film just sort of grasps at or sets up. I was like, oh, why couldn't Sam, to your point, just get to the cool stuff? Like, let's set up some things or trim the fat in the beginning and let's get, I don't want to spoil book stuff, but uh, like, let's just get to the stuff in the book that this movie just kind of ends at. Well, back in the book, uh, The Nothing, which uh, as, as we talked about before, is like an unfilmable invisible force so that. The, the team basically decided that these dark billowing clouds would be representative not of it itself, but of its approach, which feels like a little bit like, no, that's the thing. I mean, ah, come on. It's a visual medium. Give me a break. And it's effective in that way. It's really menacing, I think. Um, but it comes in and it clashes with Falcor and Atreyu falls onto this rocky coast. Uh, here he meets and we are reintroduced to the rock eater from the beginning of the film uh, who remarks that though he once thought his hand strong and mighty after being unable to save uh, the other friends of his from the beginning who were pulled right out of his hands by the nothing into the abyss, he laments his failure and he warns Atreyu that the nothing is nearly there and resigned to his fate awaits obliteration. That was a movie. <laughs> that rock scene, honestly, more than the sinking of Atrax, I thought just the rock man, what's his name? Uh, just the rock eater. The rock eater just sitting and contemplating his hands. I thought it was quite beautiful and sad and poetic. And he's just like, everything I've known, my friends, my community, everything is gone. And here I sit just thinking about loss and my own existence as I contemplate my hands. I don't know. Really beautiful. I was I think I was the saddest at that part than any other part in the movie. It definitely affected me as a kid, but watching it as an adult staring down at my own aged hands is like, it's a really devastating monologue. And also one of my favorite parts of the movie. <laughs> so as this rocky island begins crumbling with the nothing's approach, Atreyu finds murals depicting his quest step by step until reaching the point at his story where we're at, where a shattered wall reveals Gamork, the wolf hunter that stalked him through Fantasia that he's been tasked with killing Atreyu, who he doesn't know he's speaking to, and that Fantasia has no boundaries, uh, that it is, in fact, the world of human fantasy, part and parcel of the dreams of mankind made reality, and that people have begun losing, uh, mankind has begun losing their hopes and their dreams so that nothing grows stronger with each day, and that he's trying to help it, quote, because people, uh, because people who have no hopes are easy to control, and whoever has control has the power. So that, that Gamork's guiding motivation throughout this movie. Who does he serve? He serves the nothing. Which is interesting, too, because, like, right, he says, like, well, whoever can control the people in this world, I'll have the power. But, like, if he serves a master that will swallow that world whole, then it's kind of, like, weird and, like, futile in a way. Yeah, he has a boss, which is... Kind of an interesting. Well, he's like a he's like an Agent Smith in in the Matrix. He's evil, but he's also doing the bidding of some of a of the big evil boss, and therefore he's just you know an evil bureaucrat. 
But Smith resents that as opposed to Gamork, who seems like, fuck yeah, let's get this nothing done. <laughs> Gamork's like, let's get this camera on my face. I'm going to run through the fields and <laughs> wreak havoc. We're going to hell tonight. Yeah. Can you just He's imagine got it, yeah. being a, a wolf with a boss? I just can't. <laughs> well, this finally comes to the big showdown. Um, so that would be Atreyu revealing himself saying, I am Atreyu. And, and quote, since we're about to die anyway, I'd rather die fighting. Uh, Gamork rushes out of his cave toward Atreyu, who Atreyu stabs with a sharp rock, killing him. Now, this is some of the stuff where actor uh, Noah Hathaway, the actor playing Atreyu, really kind of went through hell while making this movie at the hands of Wolfgang Peterson. <laughs> um, during that scene, he almost lost an eye. Uh, when one of the claws of the giant paws poked him in the face. Uh, the robot was also too heavy, so he lost his breath as it landed on him and uh, forced him, knocked him to the ground, and they were forced to make it only the one shot because it was so dangerous, they found out. Also, earlier in the film, uh, Hathaway was hurt twice uh, while uh, filming those earlier sequences while learning to ride a horse. The horse threw him and then stepped on him. And while shooting the drowning sequence in the Swamp of Sadness, his leg got caught on the elevator and he was actually pulled underwater to the point that he was unconscious when he was returned to the surface. So Noah Hathaway, Poor definitely guy. the hero of this movie in more ways than one and really took a beating as a character and an actor. I want to know when the wind starts picking up as the storm, the nothing is blowing through. That's is he part, in a yeah. harness or is it like an actual wind machine blowing him over? Because I think Connor, you mentioned that earlier, that scene is really, really remarkably done. But now I'm thinking it's, it was just unsafe sets and directors being like, we got to get the shot, anything to get the shot. I'm going to put this kid's life in danger. It sounds as though they had the budget to do it safely, but, uh, Wolfgang Peterson, uh, he wants his grim Fantasia, I guess. <laughs> Even the filming of it has to be that way. I don't know. It's pretty intense stuff, though. And yeah, Christina is just saying that nothing at this point uh, has caught up with them. And it begins sweeping away Fantasia entirely, leaving only floating pieces of meteors uh, that were once the former land as Atreyu and Falcor soar over the abyss. Uh, Atreyu uses the Orin to find the ivory tower, uh, which is still intact among all the floating pieces. So that ultimately the use of the medallion is kind of just a homing beacon, even though it's supposed to help him on this quest. I don't know. That's a little muddy. But yeah, now uh, Atreyu is approaching the temple to find the empress awaiting on him on her throne. Uh, he hands back the Orin, apologizing for his failure. The empress, though, assures him uh, that, that, quote, uh, you brought him with you, the earthling child who could save us all. She reveals that she knew that all this would happen, which rightly pisses off Atreyu, like, Seriously, my horse died. Everybody died. What the hell? Uh, so he's a little bit pissed off, but she explains that his journey, the journey that we've been treated to throughout the film, was the only way to bring the Earthling child into their world to save them. Now, Bastion starts freaking out because as the Empress explains that uh, he too is part of the never-ending story, he realizes that his story is also being watched and experienced by others. It's kind of the way that it, it explains itself and almost this like, very weird, trippy meta commentary on audience engagement with Bastion's character and the real world of the movie. So there's a lot of stuff kind of going on here. Uh, after the Empress is pleading, 
she tries to convince Bastion of his individual and participatory role in saving Fantasia. And Bastion decides he will give the childlike Empress her new name, uh, which will save her and, and supposedly save Fantasia. And he chooses Moonchild. Now, also earlier on in the film, it's a little passing thing. Bastion happens to mention that uh, his late mother's name was really beautiful. And so it kind of alludes to the idea that Bastion is going to choose to name the childlike empress after his mother. So was his mom's name Moonchild? I had the same question, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> and like, I don't know. I, I think I just am getting lost in the mechanics of this book. <laughs> um why just not say the name i don't know it's like uh, i uh. and then also is the bookkeeper man does he keep like i want to be with the child princess again let me get to the end of the book so we're standing in the void like how does it work with other people oh like God. i don't know connor really you leave that book. old man alone <laughs> just like yeah connor was really hung up about <laughs> what the old man is doing yeah, you're calling him fat <laughs> earlier my god but how does but how does it work with other people aside from eight-year-olds i just gotta know i need I think, answers sam i think in the world of an eight-year-old the only person that exists is the eight-year-old so if a book is written <laughs> as a children's book it's pretty much gonna be from the perspective like i don't think a kid can like consider anyone else being a part of this story. You know, when you read a story and you're like, this is a singular relationship I'm having with this story. Honestly, watching Bastion reading the book took me back. And I, I remember having this thought where I was like, I just remember full afternoons. I would just sit or like lie on the floor and read a book and not do anything else. And like, just be so into a particular story. And I'm like, ah, damn, I miss those days. Like, you know, it's been a bajillion years, but I was like, just remember when you're a kid and like things are just so consuming, nothing else matters but this story. I digress to just suggest, I don't think this kid or anyone else is supposed to be considering what other readers would do in these particular stories or circumstances. Christine, that really nails the magic that I think this movie has, which we'll get to at the end. But Sam, uh, go on. Can we just revisit Moonchild for one second? <laughs> <laughs> I like if I was that empress, <laughs> I'd be like any other name than this. The empress then um then offers Bastion um everything kind of like is blown away and it just sort of cuts to black as Bastion screams her name into this the real world storm, accepting now that he is part of this book that he is reading. And that his reality has been called into question, question Matrix style. It's all kind of a lot, very meta and a lot for an eight-year-old. So maybe this bookkeeper was right. This book might not be safe for you at this age. But uh, in this void, the Empress offers Bastion one grain of sand, which is all that remains of Fantasia. <laughs> but she explains, though, reassuringly, that Fantasia can arise anew within him uh, in his dreams and in his wishes. And she asks him what he'll wish for. Uh, after considering it for a moment, he makes his first wish, which is not to revive his mother, but is to uh, instead see him soaring astride Falcor past all of the characters in the landscapes that were taken by the nothing. Fantasia fully restored, including Atreyu riding Artex, the glorious return across the golden fields. Um, next, he wishes, though, that Falcor pay a visit to the real world of Vancouver, where the movie is. And 
he then plunges down on Falcor over the heads of the bullies that uh, taunted him in the beginning of the movie, causing them to run. And it seems everyone else in the street, all these extras are also like, what the fuck is this dragon doing here? Because like I watched this time for the first time, because this is the first time it's revisited in like 25 years. I, I thought to myself over all those years, like when those bullies are running, is anybody else freaking out? And everyone in the background is like, what is happening? Which is awesome. Uh, the bullies run, and again, in an elliptical way, they wind up being chased into the dumpster they formerly brought his, forced him into. And then we get, uh, out of nowhere, just before this movie ends, the only narration in it, <laughs> which is like the first time totally out of the blue, which tells us that uh, Bastion has more stories and more adventures ahead. But that's for another story. And then, of course, once again. So good. Mm. The movie does the coolest thing ever with Falcor in the real world, wishes magic coming, and then it ends. <laughs> Why? This is like, this is so interesting and so cool. And there's a dragon, and then it just ends with, with never before done narration. That so was like a real. only adapt a third of the book. <laughs> oh, yeah. Cause, right. There are three. And they knew that they, the thing is, is when this came out, I think it was like kind of critically panned, right? How did they guarantee that they could get the funding to do all three parts? This movie was huge on home video. Okay. So it made it, it made a bunch of, oh yeah. I mean, obviously it's everywhere. Everybody knows it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's, uh, yeah, that's the never ending story. Anybody have any, any kind of like big standout moments or any notes that they want to add before we kind of wrap things up with returning to our theme. What do we think about the magic of the movie? I was trying to find a uh, reference to something I either had heard on We Hate Movies or a friend of mine had told me and maybe heard on We Hate Movies, but it was essentially like George Lucas's direction of ch child actors. And basically he didn't know how to do any sort of direction. So it was kind of like, oh, great, do that, but just like, louder or like better or more excitedly and so his direction led all of the child all of the actors in the first three movies completely astray for as being episodes one through three so i was thinking about that when i was watching the child actor performances in this movie because it feels like every performance is either on the level of adventure concentration mode either you know it's bastion reading and has like a furrowed brow or it's atreyu trudging through the mud also with a furrowed brow or they're screaming and there's no <laughs> other nuance to the performance other than those two modes and part of me feels like the director who is either like okay now concentrate now do this scene either concentrating or do the scene and yell as loud as you can. And a, and a kid will do the scene. He's like, okay, just louder. I need it to be even louder. Because there's a good five minutes, I think maybe around when the castle, the tulip castle of the princess is collapsing and everyone is screaming except for the princess. But yeah, all I wrote in my notes in all caps was just everyone is screaming right now and I don't know what to do. That or we get the childlike Empress's like Sinead O'Connor video, which is like, it looks oh, yeah. exactly like it when it's just right on her face and she's in tears. Yeah, I mean, I yeah, guess actually it, she gives she gives quite a performance and she's only she only has like six to seven minutes of screen time. 
And the poor thing too, this, this girl, she was eight years old. She happened to lose, happened to have lost, naturally lost two teeth when they were making the movie. So she had to wear a mouthpiece, which you can tell kind of affects her speech a little bit. Uh, well, she nails, I mean, she, she did great. I, I thought she was sort of the grounding presence as a tray screaming into the ether. Ah! Well, I guess if Wolfgang Peterson's direction is, you know, any indication, it's like, it's either make sure to go bigger or I'll sick the wolf on you again. Oh my God. Yeah. I don't even want to, I, I bet any of those kids would be like, I'd rather be in a George Lucas movie than <laughs> a Wolfgang Peters movie. I mean, I do have one last thought. And again, as it applies to the magic theme that we've been exploring, again, uh, sort of magic in the air this January, uh, among other things, unfortunately. But it's been it's been really interesting to reappraise this movie as a quote-unquote magic movie. I mean, I think it's, it's fantasy and there's magic involved. But I think that the main thrust of this is the idea that, Christine, as you alluded to, and as you illustrated earlier on, and we're speaking about your experience of being really immersed in literature, really just sort of ensnared in a good story and it being so captivating that it, it eclipses your your focus of other things, that it becomes a world onto itself, um, really kind of ties into the magic that we've explored thus far with Mary Poppins. It's It's sort of a magic that you that if you believe in it is true uh, via her, her influence on other people's lives, it's in and of itself where it's a question of whether or not you're willing to believe in magic in a participatory way. And that brings us then to this, which is, you know, uh, how, how willing are you to take the time to focus on something, suspend your disbelief and enjoy a really good story. And I think that there is a tangible magic to that, that this film is about beyond its fantastical elements. And that's why I find it really interesting as an adult and uh, a semi-avid reader. And so that, uh, in essence, folks, uh, we'll wrap things up for the never-ending story. Uh, we are going to be coming back next week with another magic movie to round out our theme. Uh, that's one we're really excited about and one that's very complex. Uh, you might have gotten a hint earlier on in the show if you were paying attention. So uh, look forward to that this coming week. But uh, before we wrap up, of course, you can find us on all of our socials. Uh, that's Butter With That on Instagram, Butter With That on Facebook, Butter With That One on Twitter, and Butter With That Pod at gmail.com. Is that wrong? Oh, I did so well. What's the, what is it? I was like, wow, he's really doing it. <laughs> Butter With That Podcast at gmail.com. Oh, it's the full formal <laughs> name. Okay, right. <laughs> So hard. Wasn't it just you the other week who was like, I, I worry every time we get to this moment, we're going to mess it up. I do. And as I mentioned last week, is like, thank God Connor is here right now to, to, to steer the ship right with remembering uh, the stuff that I should have memorized by now. One of us every week should just have a cue card and then we just hold up <laughs> and somebody reads off of it. <laughs> And then it'll have a little uh, applause and we can all (laughs) clap when you nail it. (laughs) Well, so be sure to get in touch with us there, folks, and uh, be sure to check out all the other great podcasts on uh, the Movie John Podcast Network. Some really great material to find there. And uh, again, some really fun material coming to you next week as we round out magic. So uh, until then, have a great whatever and uh, take care. (laughs) 